Hi, it's Dominic Preziosi for the Commonweal Podcast. Today we're featuring a conversation with the staff of Commonweal on our Christmas Critics issue. That's our December print issue when a number of people write about the books that they've read this year, and they tend to also offer recommendations to readers and friends. Speaking of books, our books columnist Anthony Domestico is also here, and he speaks with British writer Paul Kingsnorth about ecological threats, cultural fragmentation, and the crisis of the written word. This is the Commonweal Podcast. So I'm here with our editorial assistant, Issa Simon, our assistant editor, Griffin Olenek, and our managing editor, Kate Lucky. Thanks all for being here today. And we are talking about our Christmas Critics issue annually. That's what we do here at Commonweal. Right around this time of year, we feature a bunch of writers on a number of the books that they have read during the course of the year. Issa, let's start with you because uh, you got to uh, do a Christmas Critics for us this time around. And what were, what were some of the books that you looked at? Well, so my three books, one was a collection of poetry called Adrenaline by Gaeth Almadun. One was a novel called Homegoing by Yag Yassi, and one was a graphic memoir, I Was Their American Dream, by Malika Garib. So I was kind of across a lot of different genres, but the thing that ties them all together is they're all stories about people who are trying to figure out home. Mm-hmm. So Gaeth Almadun is a Syrian-Palestinian refugee who settled in Sweden. Homegoing is about these various family stories of half of the family in Africa and half of a family who was taken on a slave ship to the United States and their travels and their intergenerational journeys. And then Malika Garib is the daughter of two immigrants, a Filipino mother and a an Egyptian father. And so she writes about what it is like growing up as an immigrant in the U.S. and what it's like trying to figure out an identity in a country where what is white is considered normal when she's not white and she's surrounded by all these different cultures and trying to navigate being biracial and also in kind of a foreign land. And were you familiar with any of these writers before starting out or is this uh, you just sort of came upon these in the course of your regular reading? So I actually read Adrenaline in a class that I took last spring. It was in a poetry class I was finishing in my last semester at Notre Dame. And then Homegoing was a recommendation from a friend and I Was Their American Dream was sent to our office as a review copy. And you just sort of plucked it out of the pile and said, hey, I'm going to do this? Well, Nicole Ann Lobo and Griffin had talked about it. And then here I am now because Nicole Ann is in England. We thought it would be good to have a graphic novel in the mix. And for those who may not recall uh, who Nicole Ann Lobo is, uh, she's our Garvey Writing Fellow. And currently she's abroad in the UK. So you mentioned Griffin also took a look at this. Maybe this is a good time to segue to Griffin. He will not talk about that particular book since we already heard from Isa, but what were you? What did you do with your Christmas critics? So I tried to focus on a subject that's very dear to my heart, animals. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> well, so no, I, I, I thought that it would be good to have some visual art in the Christmas critics because it's, you know, art books make excellent gifts. But I saw some really interesting works of visual art this year, and two that stood out for me were Isa Leshko's Allowed to Grow Old Portraits of Elderly Farm Animals, which is a project that she developed over the course of nine years in which she photographs, as the title indicates, animals that have been 
abused, neglected, and are on animal sanctuary farms. Mm-hmm. So she goes there and she photographs them through a really innovative method. She takes her time getting to know her subjects as if they were humans, mm. and she sort of immerses herself in their world and becomes a kind of contemplative, meditative practice for her. And a physically strenuous activity as well as she sort of bends down to the ground, crawls through hay and grass mm. and mud. But to get these really candid shots of these animals that are distrustful of humans because they've been abused by humans. Mm -hmm. But it becomes this beautiful point of departure for a moral reflection Mm -hmm. on vulnerability, loss, death, Mm. sickness, and dying. Um, And so she describes her method in in this book as well. So it's not just a collection of photos, obviously, but a a meditative kind of reflection. Yeah, and it's it's kind of a, it's an ethical project as well. I thought it was interesting just as we were putting the magazine together, University of Chicago Press gave us permission for the images, and they said on the condition that the publication it appears in does not promote the eating of or the abuse of animals. So it's, 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 it includes the book Essays on the Ethics of Vegetarianism, Considering Animals as Subjects in Their mm. Own Right. Mm. So you also, you did another book too, and it's somebody you and I have talked about here in the office, Matthew Barney. Matthew Barney, he's, I guess you could call him an iconoclastic visual artist. Mm-hmm. He had a full-scale retrospective at the Guggenheim a number of years ago. And he's known for being provocative. Many of his works are made out of things like plastic, petroleum jelly. He's a video artist, so he mm-hmm. shoots really interesting but hard to understand sort of cryptic films Mm. and readout is no different Mm -hmm. in the fact that it's cryptic but it's more meditative and it's quieter and more contemplative and ultimately a bit more revealing Mm -hmm. it's about idaho which is where he grew up and it's centered around a film that's the project but it includes sculptures it includes uh, choreography it includes drawing Mm -hmm. it includes etchings and the catalog itself is what i recommend people check out for christmas Mm -hmm. critics because it's composed as a field guide that Mm -hmm. is it's not just essays on matthew barney's art but also about subjects he's interested in and one of those is the subject of wolves in Mm -hmm. idaho which Mm -hmm. becomes a sort of symbol Mm -hmm. of the mountains and it's all about how wolves operate. And it's so different from Issa Leshko's humble sure. pictures of animals. Here you have a predatory animal, but that is actually lent great dignity, mm. uh, a kind of majesty by Matthew Barney. Wow, great. So good pairing. And I, I think Issa do a great trio of books that y- you chose as well. And I just, in addition to Issa and Griffin, featured in our Christmas Critics edition this year, are Melody G, uh, Regina Munch, who's another assistant editor at Commonweal, David Mills, and the writer Helene Stepinski. So look for our Christmas Critics edition. I want to now switch into Okay, so we talked about stuff we read during the course of the year. What are we sort of looking at and looking forward to coming up? And and maybe, Kate, since you're here, I'll lead with you. Go ahead. Yes. So as those of you who receive the books newsletter know, I'm currently finishing Ta-Nehisi Coates' The Water Dancer, his debut novel. And if you don't get the books newsletter, here's my plug for it. It's written by our assistant editor, Regina Munch, full of recommendations, and it's a compendium of all the reviews we do each month at Commonweal. You can sign up for it on our website. It comes the last Saturday of the month. The November one, which just went out, has a great little letter from Regina about cookbooks. Mm. So that's a great way to get a sense all year round of what we're reading and what we're looking forward to. Mm-hmm. What I'm looking forward to is digging into a large sack of books that I recently purchased at a library fundraiser in my home of Stamford, Connecticut. Was this, in fact, a sack of books? It was indeed a sack. Okay. <laughs> if you purchased a reusable bag for $5 at the Ferguson Library, you could stuff it which, with as many books as you could fit in, which with my inventive positioning of the novels and collections of essays that I acquired came out to something like 30 books that I then stuffed in a corner of our apartment. (laughs) You couldn't read them all? 
I have to be careful about which ones I bring so I don't go over my 50-pound baggage limit when I go home to the West for Christmas. But that stack includes things that I have had on my should-read list for a long time. So Mark Twain, Connecticut Yankee, and King Arthur's Court, (laughs) keeping with the theme of Connecticut, Edith Wharton, who I love, some Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Mm. I picked up another copy of The Brothers Karamazov, which is one of the few books in college that I did not finish. Some Charles Dickens. And then I also found a copy of a book that I actually read as a teenager at the public library, full circle with libraries, I guess, called I Capture the Castle. I don't know if you ever read this before, Isa. It's kind of for adolescent girls. It has a green cover. But I hadn't thought about this book in forever. It's about these British teenage sisters who live in this sort of dilapidated house and their misadventures. And I remember just being totally enchanted by this book when I found it at the library on Mount Hood where I used to go with my parents and found a copy of it again. So I think I will take that as my first book to ease myself into the holiday reading regimen. And does that ring any bells, Lisa, or no? You sort of had a flash of recognition, it looked well, like, for I've a second. I've definitely but- heard of the book, but I haven't read it. But maybe I should. Right now, I'm still reading about refugees and immigrants, and I'm reading a collection of essays called The Displaced, which is refugee writers writing about their experiences. So maybe The Misadventures of Teenage Girls would be a nice break i'll bring it to you in january okay excellent and griffin what do you got going well like I'm looking kate, forward to yeah like kate i've got um another book that i missed and ought to have read by now which is invisible man by mm. ralph ellison mm-hmm. so um, good. which is it's amazing but it's actually timely because uh, as we're recording this his uh, selected letters just came out yesterday mm-hmm. so i've been reading the reviews that have been coming out one by kevin young in the new yorker mm-hmm. and it sounds fascinating i'm learning all about him he was local here he lived just up the road on Riverside Drive. Mm-hmm. And the, the novel's so interesting because it gives a feel for life in Harlem in the 30s, which is mm-hmm. something that's fascinated me. Yeah, um, and I'm glad you mentioned the letters uh, coming out too, uh, uh, the collected letters for Ralph Ellison, because that is something that I put on my own Christmas list, which I'm very much looking forward to reading. Uh, none of you have to get it for me. I've asked somebody else to make the purchase. So. Christmas is a great time for self-dealing, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. I want to thank all of you for being here. Issa Simon, Kate Lucky, and Griffin Olenek. And look for our Christmas Critics issue. If you haven't already received the print version, all of these writers are featured online as well. So thanks. Thank Thank you. Thanks. Merry Christmas. Established by Michael Higgins in 2018, Go Rebuild My House is an online forum built to encourage constructive conversation surrounding reform in the Catholic Church. Read the latest blog at www.sacredheart.edu forward slash rebuild my house. Paul Kingsnorth is a British poet, novelist, essayist, journalist, and former environmental activist. He's the author of 10 books, most recently, Savage Gods in which his experience of moving with his wife and two children to a small farm in Ireland serves as the starting point for a deeper meditation on the creative process of writing, the nature of language, and what it means to live a life rooted in time and space. Our book's columnist, Tony Domestico, had a wide-ranging conversation with him about everything from the Back to the Land movement and Annie Dillard to Zen Buddhism. So take a listen. So, Paul, thanks so, so much for joining us today. In your new book, Savage Gods, you open by talking about how the act of writing, or at least your act of writing, 
seems motivated by a sense of what you describe as severance of being lost or cut off. And writing becomes for you, you say, a, a way of working against or through this feeling of being lost. And then almost immediately, though, you transition to talking about a different attempt to feel less lost, which is your decision to move to the west of Ireland a few years ago. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what motivated this move to the west of Ireland, what you were hoping to find there, and what you did uh, end up finding there. Well, thank you. Uh, thanks for thanks for having me on the podcast. It's um, it's lovely to be able to talk about the book, and also, as I said to you before we started, almost impossible as well because it's <laughs> it's a book about the failure of words, and it's also a book that I wrote by accident, which I've never done before. I've written ten books. This is my tenth book. Each one of them in the past, whether they've been fiction or non-fictional poetry or anything, have all been um, you know planned and, and managed. And this one just sort of appeared uh, and wrote itself in four months. So it's uh, it's it's an interesting, not even an experiment because it wasn't intentional, but it, it did it did arise from a kind of strange crisis of faith, not religious faith per se, but faith in a certain set of beliefs. One of which was really um, the sense that as a writer, I had all the tools available to me to kind of dissect and understand the world. So really, for the last fifteen years or so, even twenty years, I've been writing about the connection between people and the rest of nature. That's really the subject that I write about, whether that's in fiction or nonfiction. I've been an activist. I've written for pressure groups. I've written my own books about the damage that uh, global civilization is doing to the the gnats, to the web of life. And that really has been the motivation, that sense of the destruction that we're, we're causing and also our, our own sense, certainly in, in the industrialized West, of a kind of severance, as you say, from from the rest of life. So in terms of moving to Ireland, the, the thing that motivated that really, I've, I've lived in Britain all my life. I'm English. I grew up in cities and suburbs and I'd wanted for a long time with my wife, who wanted the same thing, to move to a piece of land, to the country, to own maybe an acre or two of land, to work it, to grow as much of our own food as we could, to homeschool our kids, to really reduce our kind of impact on the natural world, but also just to connect more closely with it. So in that sense, it's the kind of old back to the land thing that uh, lots of urban people in the West have been doing for probably centuries. But, you know, it's, I wouldn't want to diminish it because the, the, the aim of this was to try and rediscover something that in some ways I'd never had, uh, which uh, and, and also to try and um, to try and connect my words with my practice, because you can sit around writing about protecting nature all day long and how long how we ought to change our lifestyles and be sustainable and all this stuff. But if you're not doing it yourself, and if you've never tried to do it yourself, and if you haven't got dirty hands, and if you can't grow your own food, then you're in danger of just you know, just emitting hot air, which is something I just do a lot of. So really, it was that. It was an attempt to, to root myself in a place, to get to know that place, to learn some skills, to to sort of step back from the kind of worst excesses of machine society. Yeah, you also talk about how as a writer, really up until quite recently, you've thought that the writer has to be, in a certain way, rootless, right? Has to be standing outside of a community, has to be constantly on the move in order to be constantly creating. And then you get to the West of Ireland and you're, you're seeking a sense of belonging. You're seeking a sense of rootedness. And then what do you actually find when you get to the West of Ireland? What, were, what are some of the crises that are brought on when you actually get there and begin tending the land and homeschooling your children? 
Yeah, well, I think that's a really interesting contradiction there. So what we've got is almost a crisis of modernity uh, in, in kind of refracted through the notion of writing, because um, this notion of the writer as individual who is separate from a crowd who creates great art, or at least tries to create great art by speaking his or her truth, very much the kind of mythos of, you know, the novelist, the painter, the musician, etc., and it's a very weird thing in historical terms, because for most of history, actually, art or creative work has been produced, not collectively exactly, but as part of, of, of community expression. Whether we're talking about storytellers or myth tellers around fires in tribal societies, or whether we're talking about the great age of, of Christian art in, in medieval Europe, you know, in, in which the, the, the art overwhelmingly is produced to illustrate aspects of, of the Christian story. It's not until the modern age individuals just going out and expressing themselves. They're they're operating within a tradition. And actually, it's really very recently in the West and elsewhere as well now, the artists have been encouraged to not only to step outside of traditions, but to smash all the traditions up. That's really what modernism is, right? We break all the traditions, or maybe they're broken in the First World War or whenever. And we say we don't need traditions anymore because we are... We are standing here giving out our truth. Uh, and what you end up with then, actually, as a writer, is you find that you're producing lots of little shards of something or trying to put something back together or piece a tradition back together. And what I found as a writer, both of fiction and nonfiction, is, is exactly that contradiction. Because on the one hand, as you say, I, 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 was, very, I was very clear, as all, all writers or artists are, that we need to be able to have the freedom to dig into our own sense of truth and beauty and self-expression but at the other on the other hand if you're not rooted in anything at all whether it's a place or a tradition or a religion or a sense of history or time or ancestry then then what are you other than screaming into a void so i've i suppose i've been straddling that all my life and the story i turned out to be telling in all of my writing whether it's my activist writing or my novels i think and i certainly wasn't telling it deliberately at least early on uh, but the story was this this lack, this broken connection, both between people and the rest of nature, but also between people in the West in this very individualist age and any sense of community or place. So coming here was an attempt to root myself back into a place. But of course, what I did was I moved to a place in a country I don't even come from, where I'm not part of the culture. Uh, the place that I do come from is now a, you know, a giant suburb in the southeast of England that I can't bear to live in and couldn't afford to anyway. So if I want to be somewhere sort of wilder and, and cleaner and uh, and more peaceful i had to come somewhere else so yeah there was a sense of obviously i don't belong here i'm english i'm in ireland i mean i knew that was going to happen that's fine but it's more the, the the crisis that i ended up writing this book out of by accident was not so much that as the sense of you know this is you can put your feet down and you can grow your food and you can plant trees and you can be in a place and you can compost your your shit and you can homeschool your kids and we do all those things uh, and and they're good things by the way and we're enjoying them and we're still doing them so it's not that that turned out to be a bad idea and we want to go back again it's more that that is not the answer to a sense of rootlessness and placelessness it turns out to be deeper than that at least for me so yeah it's not it's not simply a question of in a way there's nothing to go back to as i say for me uh, in this situation so that's a that's a revelation shall we say yeah. yeah, and you have a lovely figure for that where you talk about the artist both and yourself both wanting to be around the fire, telling stories, being part of that tradition, partaking of and contributing to that community, and also 
away on the mountain looking down at the fire, right? So wanting to be in the midst of that community rooted, but also above or beyond or at least distinct from that community. Yeah, I think so. And I think that to some extent, that's a tension that writers will always carry and any creative person will always carry. Maybe just everyone always carries in a very fluid kind of liquid modern world in which everybody's endlessly thrown about and moving around. What's the balance between uh, again, maybe this is the, the, the dilemma of modernity. What's the balance between having roots in a tradition, a sense of place, and a sense of home, and a sense of stability, which everybody needs, and also being able to express yourself, to be yourself, to have some degree of freedom? It's not as if there's ever a comfortable or simple answer to that question. But it's a question that gets more urgent all the time because you know, the, the, the global economy, the global culture gets more chaotic and rootless all the time. And it's harder and harder almost anywhere now to, to sort of put your feet down on anything with, with the, the, the level of technological change. And now we have all the ecological collapses sort of panning out as well. It's as if it's impossible to be still. We've created this world in which not only is it impossible to be still, but we're encouraged never to be still. So it's almost as if for writers now, one of the things that occurs to me is that for the whole of maybe, I don't know, the 18th, the 19th, even the 20th century, writers were kind of rebelling against tradition, trying to break it, trying to be free, trying to run away. Now it's almost as if the task is to try and learn how to come home again, or even if we have one. Yeah. And so that that actually leads to a really important and explicit strand of primitivism that runs throughout your book. So you're deeply influenced by and interested in D.H. Lawrence. You're interested in writers like Annie Dillard, who want to move writing and, and poetry and nonfiction toward back towards a kind of primal wildness. And I, I'm wondering, first of all, if you could talk about your own attraction to and wariness of this primitivist impulse in yourself and, and in modern artists generally, um, by talking a bit about a really lovely anecdote you, you describe in the book of your own experience in the highlands of West Papua New Guinea when you were around 20 years old. Yeah, well, it's a story I seem to be telling a lot at the moment. So it's, um, I was about older than that. I was more like 30, actually, when I was doing uh, that. I was in West Papua, which is uh, occupied by Indonesia at the moment. There's a liberation movement over there, the Free West Papua Movement. Uh, and I was writing about that for the first book I wrote, which was a book which was a journey through a lot of movements of resistance to the process of economic globalization. Um, which I wrote, it was published in 2003. So it's uh, it's an oldish book now, but quite prescient given the sort of rebellions against globalization that are happening now in different ways. And I was in, I was in the highlands of West Papua, which is a very forested rainforest country. And I was trekking between two villages with some people from one of the villages. And they were taking me to see some uh, people they wanted me to interview who'd been tortured by the Indonesian army. And I was, we were just walking through this forest. It's a very, very thick rainforest. And these two guys were just walking ahead of me with with their spears over their shoulders and they're walking barefoot. And we get to a break in the trees and we're up on a mountain. So in this break in the trees, we can see this great range of forested mountains just rolling off to the horizon. You can't see anything but these huge rainforest trees. And these two guys, they just line up with their spears on their shoulders and they, they just sing. They sing a song out into the forest, obviously in their own language. So I don't know what they're singing. And after a minute or two, they just stop and we just move on and they don't explain themselves. And it's very matter of fact. And later on, when we got to the village, I asked them, what was that song you were singing there? Uh, and, and one of them said, well, you know, we were just thanking the forest for letting us pass through. 
And um, it's, as I say, it's very matter of fact, it's very practical. This forest is their home. There's nothing romantic about it in the way that we might consider in the West or, or in the way that we might try to smear people who have a connection with nature. It's not a, it's not a romantic thing. They live in the forest. They have to eat from it. They have to hunt in it. And they have to build their homes from it. But they're also aware that the forest is a, is, a, is a living place and that they are part of that life and that you have to give in order to receive which is a very old message which virtually every culture in the world has understood, except ours, um, apparently. So that stuck with me for a long time and came back to me quite recently because it's a sense of reciprocity and it's a sense of old connection to something very much deeper and more magical in the literal sense and more wild and alive. And we have effectively in our culture killed all that off. And I don't know if that's primitivism. Primitivism is, is is almost an ideology. That's why it's got an ism on the end. And I'm always, I'm always suspicious of ideologies. But this sense that people in pre-modern societies, and particularly indigenous societies, have a much stronger and clearer and deeper connection to the the, uh, the, the living planet than we do, and that they're able to do things and see things and behave in ways that we are not, is very clearly true to me. And every anthropologist could tell you that that was true. And every time I've been to one of these places, uh, I've seen that it's true. Uh, and again, it's not to romanticize different cultures or suggest that they're perfect or anything like that. But there's clearly, in me anyway, a great sense of loss. And I think in many people, having to live in this machine culture that we've built and telling ourselves that reason and science and materialism will make up for this utterly, utterly riven connection between us and, and the rest of creation. Uh, I don't think it works. I think it's, I think it's a big part of our modern crisis. Yeah, and in, in one of the you mentioned before that this book describes, dramatizes, thinks through a crisis of language, and you ultimately come to the understanding, or at least the suspicion, that language is one of the things that prevents you from experiencing the world more directly, more immediately, that it's a gauze that separates you from reality. It's a very different understanding of language, a really beautifully different understanding of language, where you say, you know, that in Papua New Guinea, right, they, they sing to the forest and expect the forest to hear, right? So language isn't that which separates us from the world, but it's a way of giving to the world that has given to us. Yeah, they expect the forest to hear and they expect the forest to sing back as well. That's the other thing. This is the process of communication and something which can sound like a, you know, a superstition or anything to a rational person is very clearly a practical way of behaving in, in, all, in all tribal cultures. Uh, and not just tribal cultures, either in pre-modern agricultural societies in, in Europe, you have a lot of this kind of folklore too. You can look at any of the Grimm's fairy tales and see people endlessly communicating with strange things in the forest and having the forest communicate back with them and not always in a benevolent way either yes i mean it's as much as anything the crisis here which i ended up writing about is a crisis of written language that's the key thing written versus oral language it's not language per se because everything in nature has a language you know everything's communicating with everything else all the time every bird is communicating every insect every plant and tree the more we learn about fungal mycelium the more we know that trees are endlessly communicating with each other below the ground and perhaps above the ground too, the more fascinating thing that uh, about a lot of cutting-edge ecological science at the moment is that it's in some ways taking us back to places that tribal people were at in the first place. When we listen, when I listen to, to people in Papua saying that they talk to the forest and the forest talks to them, and then we look at the way that, as I say, the fungal mycelia connect trees, 
and they're able to detect when a human walks into the forest and the difference between a human and a deer, I can start to see that actually, you know, that stuff they were saying about the forest being alive, it wasn't just a metaphor. It was real. Uh, we, we didn't know it. They were able to know it. They might not know what a mycelia is, but they, they're very, very clearly able to sense what's going on in a way that we're not. So the crisis for me was a growing suspicion that actually, beyond a certain point, written words get in the way of that connection that we need to reestablish between the human animal and the rest of life. As you say, to me, it felt like there was a gauze hanging between me and the rest of the world. And I'm a very intellectual guy. I work with words. Uh, and words, when I was younger, were always a way of understanding the world. You know, books are this great liberation, this great window into all sorts of things you never knew. And I don't come from a sort of academic or literary background at all. So it was a great discovery for me to spend my whole childhood reading amazing books. So you've got that sense in, in these cultures that, as, as Gary Snyder puts it, books are our ancestors in the West. Books are our grandfathers. You know, we don't have the oral stories anymore. We have things passed down in books. So there's that great sort of boon. But at the same time, too much of it, to me, has become or became, yeah, a block, actually. I found that the, the, the terrible suspicion crept up on me that as a writer, I had to shut up, stop creating written words and intellectualizing and rationalizing and creating frameworks of words in order to actually communicate or just pay attention to what was out there, which obviously for a writer is uh, it's not a great revelation. But yeah, I was unable to avoid it after a while. I think it had been creeping up on me for years. Yeah, you, you describe at one point writing as, uh, quote, fossilizing life, replacing life with representations of life, which I thought, I don't know if it was a conscious play on Emerson's description of language as fossil poetry. But I thought that was an interesting connection because Emerson there is talking about how words, you know, contain the kind of sediments of history and culture within them. So it's a, it's a way of describing the richness of, of words. And you're talking about while you're also very interested in the way in which words always emerge from place and from culture and from history, you're also interested not just in language or writing as fossil poetry, but as fossilizing life, kind of preventing us from actually engaging in attending, engaging with and attending to life. Yeah. And that was certainly how I felt when I was writing this book. Uh, and it's worth saying, by the way, that uh, th this is a very personal book. It's not a book that's attempting to set down rules for everybody else. Yeah. Um, so other people may feel differently about words. I'm not, I'm not uh, suggesting this is how we must all now view literature. Yeah. No. Yeah. And one of the things I really admired about the book is how you effectively declared a moratorium on opinions, right? You said you didn't want to have any more opinions. You didn't want to make any more arguments, right? You just wanted to explore these various animating, generative, terrifying tensions that you were witnessing in your own kind of psychology and in your own work. Well, yeah, you see, I was almost, I was almost castigating myself there because I, you know, I'm a very opinionated kind of a man, uh -huh. Uh -huh. Uh, less so than I used to be, but I still am sometimes annoyingly opinionated. And I was, you know, much of my early writing, especially was activist writing, you know, I wanted to change the world and I wanted to make arguments and I wanted to explain why things were wrong and how we could change them. And I'm not, again, I'm not suggesting no one should ever be doing that. It can be very valuable. But yeah, uh, after, after a while, you end up constructing a kind of edifice of argument and then suggesting everybody else should be buying into your edifice and, and sort of climbing aboard it and very often these things are very much more nuanced and personal than we actually would like to give credit for we like to take our own 
ideas and feelings and prejudices and generalize from them and then argue about them and suggest that we've discovered something universal when actually we're really talking about ourselves, um, which can sometimes be useful to notice. But yeah, it's really, um, as I say, it's the, it's the, the kind of crisis of the written word. You know, the Emerson uh, comparison wasn't deliberate, actually. But no, it's a, it, it, it can feel as if the, the written word does fossilize in a way that the spoken word doesn't. I mean, I have friends who are oral storytellers, and I've, I've done some oral storytelling myself or attempted to do it. Uh, and it's interesting that every time you tell a story, it will be different. You can just try telling a fairy tale from one of the Grimm's books and tell it to your children, and then you can tell it again next week, and new things will come into it. And certainly in a rich oral tradition, the storytellers will change the story or the story will be changed because they would say that the story comes from somewhere else, not from them. The story will be changed every time they tell it by the place they're telling it in or or what the spirits want them to do. And so you've got something that's very much more flexible than a book in, in which you write the words down and there are the words forever and you can just reproduce it if you have the copyright. So it's, you know, it's a very, very different, responsive, naturalistic way of communicating. And it's much more open to the kind of, to the world beyond your head, the world beyond the head of the kind of individual who's created the novel or whatever piece of art you're doing. You also talk towards the end of the book about a very different kind of practice that has enabled you to move away from the overly intellectualizing the over the overly intellectualizing impulse of the written word to a more direct engagement and attention to the world, which is your practice of Zen Buddhism. And I was wondering if you would talk a little bit about your decision to take up that practice, how it has helped you attend to the world. And, and you describe it actually at one point as interestingly, an almost an antidote to writing. So how you think about your practice of meditation in relation to your writing? Yeah, I mean, I see Zen now as something that um, was almost a gateway for me in, in opening up various different kind of practices of just learning to pay attention and be quiet which has turned out, turned out what I needed to do. I, I, I was attracted to Zen for a long time and meditation, Buddhist meditation for a long time. And when I was 40, which was six years ago now, on my 40th birthday, I went on a, uh, a Zen retreat for five days in the hills of Wales. I didn't realize till I got there that it was actually a silent retreat. So um, I thought I'd, I was told at the beginning that no one was allowed to talk for five days except during specific meditation sessions, um, which made me panic. I thought, oh shit, I've got to go home. Um, but I, st- I stuck it out and um, I spent five days on a hillside in Wales with no electricity or or anything really other than a, a fire, just not saying anything and meditating and talking, working with a bunch of, of other strangers. Um, it was utterly transformative for me. Uh, very hard work. I have to say it took me two or three days to kind of break through something. But but I did. And that was a transformative process. And what Zen does, as I say in the book, is it does tend to destroy you. And actually, I, I find the more I read and the more I see and the more I speak to others that the, the, the confluence between Zen and pretty much every other kind of mystical religious practice, including Christian mysticism, is very clear. You can read, I don't know, I read The Cloud of Unknowing couple of years ago this great you know the great medieval mystical christian text and you know it could have been written by zen monk actually you just changed some of the terminology uh, and and the silence and the breaking through the cloud and seeing the truth and you know the 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 value of the necessity the sacrifice etc it's very very similar in the pathway that it takes and it does require that sense of silence and self-examination and the paying of attention in order to break down the the kind of 
you know, the fake notion of the self, the notion of the ego, the separate self, which brings us right back to that uh, thing we talked about at the beginning of the, the writer as the individual. And Zen was the practice which really enabled me to kind of break through that and at least sometimes have that sense of, oh, yes, everything's connected to everything else. And the question I end up with is, you know, how do you write from this different place? Which is almost where the book ends, or at least it's one of the questions at the end of the book. How could I write like nature speaks? How could I write like oral stories are told? How could I write like uh, uh, a, a Zen monk or a Christian mystic pays attention? Uh, I have no idea what the answer to that is, but if there's any kind of um, any kind of writing for me in the future, it has to be some sort of exploration of that. Um, yeah, but as I say, I've, uh, I have, I have, I have no answers. Sadly, yeah, yeah. Well, well, the book itself brilliantly and powerfully explores the all of these mystical and poetic issues that we've been talking about, and it's a it's a wild and surprising and lovely meditation. So, thank you for writing it, and thank you for speaking with me today, Paul. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's been very interesting. Thanks. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi.